This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Wealthbar. Whether you have $1,000 or a $1 million, Wealthbar makes accessing professionally managed investments and financial advice ridiculously easy. Start investing with an advisor at your fingertips through Wealthbar's top-rated app. Sign up online in minutes at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand and you'll get a $100 fee credit. From CanadaLand, this is Oppo. I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary. And I'm Sandy Garasino in Vancouver. Everything's going so well. Isn't it? We should all be just grateful that we're in Canada right now. That's all I can say. As America burns to the ground, global superpowers are shifting, and Canada's place in the world just got so much more complicated, which is exactly what we needed. Last week, there was a major update to the Ming Wangzhou case. A judge decided that the Huawei CFO's alleged crimes meet the bar of double criminality, which is a really hot way of saying that the process of extraditing her to the United States will continue. And this case um, could be dragged out for months, actually years, and finally make its way to the Supreme Court. But also, there is a dual role. The Attorney General could step in at any time and address it procedurally and quite properly. And all of this comes at a time when people are worried about a new Cold War between China and the United States and China and apparently the rest of the world, which would leave Canada in a tough spot. So we're going to dig into Meng's case. We're also going to speak to Philip Calvert, who is a longtime diplomat in China, for some perspective on what this means for Canada. But first, I just want to make a quick note of this. This little tidbit made its way into my inbox the other day, and I think it's uh, an observation that's been making the rounds. So far, in the last five months, we've had an impeachment, unlike anything we've seen since 1974, a pandemic that we haven't seen since 1918, an economic collapse akin to 1929, and now riots in the United States that look something like 1968. And that's been the last five months. I mean, I don't even remember that the impeachment happened. It kind of just got lost in my memory hole. It's almost like the timeline appears to be spinning into some kind of horrible end game, and it's impossible to know what to say or, or how to respond to the riots and protests now springing up across the United States as a result of the murder of George Floyd. In addition to solidarity protests in Canada, we are now also seeing a movement in response to the death of Regis Korshinsky Packet in Toronto. We don't yet know what happened, but police were called to the 29-year-old's apartment on a domestic complaint last week. After they arrived, she died after falling off of a 24-story balcony. The Special Investigations Unit is now investigating the incident. And obviously, everyone here at Oppo is very sorry for her family and her community. All of this is raising the issue as if we didn't know that Black Lives Matter is an issue for Canada as well. And also, Indigenous Lives Matter and minorities uh, overall. We have to come to terms with this. On the Black Lives Matter issue in the United States, I just want to make a note. I saw what Steve Nash, the Canadian basketball player, tweeted last night where he said that this is a white problem. How are we Caucasian people going to create equality? Listen, read, walk in others' shoes, organize, sacrifice, change, support, vote. These are the minimum of reparations. You know, I I guess what I feel as we are two um, white 
commentators addressing an issue that kind of exploded just in the last couple of days while we haven't had much chance to come to terms with it. So all I can, all I really want to say about this is that we need diversity in newsrooms, in media, in government, law enforcement, justice. We don't need to just hire people of other backgrounds. We need to promote them and we need to give them power and a voice and uh, get out of the way while they do that. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Wealthbar. Is your bank putting you on hold when it comes to your investment questions? Of course they are. They take your money, but not your phone calls. They make you book a meeting just to book a meeting. It doesn't have to be that way. You have enough to worry about right now. My God, do you. Wealthbar makes accessing professionally managed investments and financial advice ridiculously easy. When you invest with Wealthbar, they'll pair you with professionally managed portfolio that's tailored to your goals. Their convenient app makes it easy to set up automatic deposits, open new accounts, and check in on your progress anytime. And when you have questions, their financial advisors are available directly through the app. No appointment necessary. Man, that's a better deal than I get from my hairdresser, or would, when she opens up, which she may not. Start investing with an advisor at your fingertips through Wealthbar's top-rated app. Sign up online in minutes at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand, and you'll get a $100 fee credit. Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou has lost the appeal to have her case dismissed. The extradition case will continue. She is, of course, accused in the United States of fraud for allegedly lying to a bank about the involvement of one of Huawei's subsidiaries with Iran that would violate the U.S. sanctions. Likely a serious setback for the fate of two Canadians still detained by China since days after her arrest. China urged Canada to release Meng and, quote, not to go further down the wrong path. Just to summarize how we got here, I mean, everybody, I think, knows the rough outlines of the case, which is that uh, Meng Wanzhou, who is the chief financial officer of Huawei, has been under uh, house detention, house arrest, while there's an application by the United States to extradite her. And last week, the uh, Associate Chief Justice uh, of the BC Supreme Court, Heather Holmes, uh, who is someone that I once knew, heard the case and ruled that the extradition could proceed, but we've got, there are other stages to it. So it's going to continue on starting on Wednesday. Uh, Sandy, our listeners may not know this, but you are a former Crown Prosecutor in British Columbia. So before we get to our guest, I just want to ask you really quickly, what do you think about last week's decision? Well, it's not a surprise to me, knowing this justice, who is a real straight arrow, um, She's not uh, of the disposition to wander far from the straight letter of the law, which is, I think, what Canadians expect. I didn't think that the dual criminality argument was going to succeed, um, largely because there was fraud involved. There was dishonesty. Meng Wanzhou, it's not contested, did mislead HSBC bankers about the true essential purpose of the of the financing. And I think that that's going to be what the U.S. government hangs its hat on. So I wasn't surprised. And Meg will be back in court this Wednesday. So, of course, uh, we're going to continue to watch this case. So we've brought in Philip Calvert to talk more about what this means for Canada-China relations. Are we looking at a trade war? Something worse? Philip worked as a diplomat in China for many years. After that, he served as Canada's ambassador to Thailand, Cambodia, and Laos. He's currently a senior fellow with the China Institute of the University of Alberta. Despite this, he tells us that he's actually in Victoria. 
Philip, how did you manage to escape that weather? Um, well, it was just uh, luck. I decided to retire right out of uh, Thailand to go straight to Victoria. And uh, it's the joy of being in this day and age where I can do things virtually with Alberta. Mm. So it's a se- I'm a senior fellow, which means you kind of uh, have a wide range of where you can live and what you can do. So you spent a long time in the Foreign Service in Beijing, and you acted as Canada's ambassador to other countries in Asia. If you were the ambassador of China today, what would you be thinking right now? I'd be worried about, first of all, about the two Michaels. They've been imprisoned now for China in response to the uh, detention of Meng Wanzhou. They've been in prison now for over 500 days. The conditions cannot be good, and they've been under very difficult circumstances. I'd be worried about their time in prison and what's going to happen to them. I'd also be worried about the state of Canada-China relations. Uh, China is an important player in the world. It has economic importance for Canada. It has a growing importance in global issues. And it's in our interests to have, um, you know, have engagement with them, have some kind of relationship with them. We have to be recalibrating this a bit uh, now. I think, I think we've seen some of the dark side has become more prevalent in people's uh, minds now, the dark side of how China operates. So we, I'd be trying to look for what kind of balanced relationship we can have with China, one that advances our interests, but also reflects the, the realities of China and the world today. What is the path forward to Canada and what is China going to do? It seems that the extradition hearing at the judicial phase is on track and looking like it's moving towards uh, an order for extradition. Then it goes to the ministerial phase, at which point there are options. There are two outcomes. One, Meng Wanzhou is eventually extradited to the United States or she is released by Canada. What will China do with if she is extradited to the U.S.? I mean, there are no good solutions here if she is extradited to the United States. And and I've talked with some legal uh, scholars here at UVic, one in particular who's an expert in extradition, who who has pointed out that our threshold for extradition is pretty low. And we've seen this with other cases. So if we think there's a possibility that, you know, this is a case, we extradite. We don't try the case here. It's not up to us. It's just to decide whether there's enough of a case. And it seems, you know, it, it would seem to be evident that probably there's enough. And my guess is a judge would decide that there is enough evidence to extradite. So the question becomes political. Does the minister intervene? Does the minister say, say no, we are not going to extradite her and she goes home? In fact, the minister could do this at any time. And China is well aware of this. The minister, under Article 23 of the extradition agreement, the minister can stop an extradition at any point in the case and, you know, send her home. It's probably a little more difficult now than it would have been earlier on because uh, the minister possibly could have made the case that this is actually about about uh, Iran sanctions and it's political and so and, and the U.S. trade. Yeah, negotiation. yeah. But you know that's an extraordinary uh, decision for a minister to make. Usually, and it's usually only done under very extraordinary circumstances in, in cases where, for example, uh, it's a mistaken identity and that sort of thing. This is what I understand. So it's a very unusual move to make. So if she's extradited, unfortunately, I think this means for those the, the, the two Michaels that our hearts go out to their families, but I think it means that they'll be in prison for a long time. And if China wants to put pressure on us, they can start the trial process. They're ready, poised to start the trial process. And that puts even more pressure on the government to do something. 
isn't Canada in this horrible position where if we do, if the minister does release them, then we're just giving in to essentially hostage tactics? Yeah, that's it. And I think we'd have to be clear about this. You know, the Chinese side has been saying, look, if you release Meng, you release Meng Wanzhou, and I think, frankly, you've heard some of this from some parts of the Canada-China Business Council as well. If you release Meng Wanzhou, we'll kind of get things back to the way they were and we'll celebrate our 50th anniversary and all those will be good. And that's a terrible misreading of the Canadian sentiment now. The Canadian sentiment is, has really shifted. So if the government were to uh, decide to uh, release Meng Wanzhou, if the minister were to decide to release Meng Wanzhou, it would have to be just portrayed as a... Um, humanitarian move to get these guys back. That's it and that's all. It's not about restoring our ties with China and not about doing, yeah. doing anything else, just to get our people back. And this is where I came to this kind of conclusion that how do you then deal with the fact that this is rewarding China's bad behavior? Uh, China's taken Canadian hostages before, uh, the Garrets, and, and, and it took a prime ministerial visit and a few other things for them to be released. And this is where I came to this, this conclusion that unless countries band together to reject this kind of behavior and impose some kind of punishment or reaction to this kind of behavior collectively, China will keep doing this because it works for them. Well, and not that, but I'm not even sure politically that, that, that the Canadian government can do what you're suggesting, because um, if Canada were to hand over Meng Wanzhou under the auspices of a humanitarian release, the way that actually comes across is a grubby prisoner transfer, right? Yeah. Um, and I actually don't think that a lot of Canadians are going to go for that either. I, th I think that that would leave a very foul taste in a lot of Canadians' mouths, particularly after we've been now talking for years about the importance of the rule of law and how we're a rule of law nation. I don't see how that's an easy option for Canada at this point. No, it's not an easy option. As I said, there are no right decisions here. They're both bad options. And I think you're right that Canadians would respond. A lot of Canadians would respond uh, negatively to this, and they'd say, we're just giving in. The press would have a field day with this. And the other question would be, well, why did you wait 500 you know, days to do this? And why didn't you just decide to do this earlier on if you were going to do this? So there'd be a lot of uh, questions about that. And the uh, and it, also the other part of that is the reaction from the White House. Uh, the reaction from the United States would be probably very strong. Uh, now you may calculate that we're heading into a, you know, heading into a, a period a of absolute chaos and collapse anyway. So meh. Yeah, they're distracted by Might a lot of notice. other things anyway. You know, so 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 maybe that wouldn't be as uh, as uh, intent on this. But they're just. But one of their focuses is the China relationship, and Trump is now trying to line up a G11 or something, which is basically a, a coalition of countries to deal with China. So, you know, that it wouldn't play well with them as well. So it's, it's, no, it's, it's a very tough situation. It's, it's the worst, for me, it's the worst position you've been in as long as I've been involved with China relations. And our relationship is worse than, it's worse than it was after Tiananmen, because after Tiananmen, we were, you know, there was a collective global response, a response by the West to, to what happened there. This is really us alone against China. And uh, it's a, a very uncomfortable place to be. It doesn't seem like anybody is in a position right now to start strengthening multilateral ties against China. It's not so much strengthening multilateral ties. I mean, I think the, the whole multilateral system is under a lot of pressure right now. But I think this is a time China is uh, has its own challenges right now. And even though they're putting a brave face on it, and even though they're putting a brave face on things like uh, 
uh, in the response to COVID. Their economy is doing the worst it's been doing since the mid-70s. Uh, and that has terrific political implications for the country as well, because unemployment rates could be as high as 20%. Mm. in China right now. That's that's pretty incendiary. Uh, you know, if people are out of work and people are unhappy, this is a possibility for some political instability that they're going to be worried about. Um, their economy's not doing well. There is still discontent with the way COVID was handled at the beginning, probably under the surface. So um, they're not in a strong position. They're not in as strong a position as they were going into the COVID. So this is maybe an opportunity for Canada and others to collectively um, band together and take some action. China has been using economic coercion for a long time, and they, they use it uh, to punish countries uh, when they think that these countries uh, have done something they don't like politically. They use it as a political weapon. And, uh, you know, it's, it, we could be uh, perhaps, you know, responding more forcefully to this. I think what's, what is holding... Canada back, is that there is this concern for what's going to happen to the two Michaels, you know, if Canada takes any strong actions. And that's, I'm certain that's a calculation that's taking place uh, at uh, parts of the Canadian government. But that also plays into China's hands of if we take these sausages, we can uh, push countries around to do what they want. Where is China seeing itself now? I'm just thinking about risk to itself. And I'm t- I, and I, perhaps I should say the Xi Jinping government and Xi Jinping himself, his strategic calculation, you know, 60% of the world's population lives in Asia. The military development that is going on by China is so much focused on, on the Asian region. It is definitely with Hong Kong showing some true colors about where it intends to go. Where does the international calculation fit in here? And what can you expand a little bit more on the risks internationally of the COVID situation? When we look at how... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. China sees itself. I think we have to think about how China sees the world and how it hasn't seen the world for a long time. And this actually plays into the Meng Wanzhou case very clearly, because the reason they're reacting so strongly or have reacted so strongly with the Meng Wanzhou case is it's not just because she's a senior, uh, you know, a senior person and the daughter of the founder of, of Huawei. And it's not just because uh, what she knows. I mean, uh, the, the background to uh, her request for extradition is also uh, linked to, a, you know, a intellectual property case in the United States. Uh, there, there's been an indictment, two indictments that I handed down. That the United States is going after Huawei for, uh, you know, a violation of intellectual property rights, stealing uh, uh, intellectual secrets, uh, that sort of thing. But it's also because, and the reason we are caught in this, because I believe China sees this as part of a global geopolitical move by the United States. They see the United States as wanting to keep China down. They see the United States as wanting to uh, restrain Huawei's rise or the rise of other companies and restrain China's rise to where it should be in the world. 
So Canada has played this kind of, to them, either a witting or unwitting role in detaining Meng Wanzhou, and uh, they have to respond strongly to this because it's, to them, it's a matter of where they will be in the world. They have ambitions to restore themselves to being the kind of uh, global power that uh, they were in the Ming Dynasty. They know that they have been weakened. Their economy has been weakened by uh, by COVID and by the experience. I think uh, there was a while there in January and February where Xi Jinping has uh, what seemed to be uh, a bit on the defensive about his lack of presence and lack of reaction and his government's lack of reaction to COVID to stop it earlier on. But uh, what also has been happening in China is also this a greater sense of... Um, suspicion about interdependence with the United States. You know, the United States is talking about decoupling, but I, you know, there's also been discussion in China as well about the, the dangers of being too much interdependent on the United States and what that does to your own sovereignty, what that does to your own economic linkages. This is something that's always really confused me about China. Until relatively recently, you know, if China wanted to be, you know, this emerging and, and dominant global power with a great deal of both economic and moral and political weight in the world, they appeared to be on the right path until really only a couple of years ago. And then you start to see, you know, the consolidation of power by Xi Jinping. You're starting to see, you know, the detention of Muslim Uyghurs. You're starting to see things like hostage politics through the kidnapping of Michaels and, and that kind of, those kinds of really hard ball tactics. The types of tactics that we more commonly associate with either deeply authoritarian and or rogue states. So if I were China and I were trying to consolidate my power on the world stage, it looks like a lot of these tactics are a step backward. And I don't really understand why they they made that switch, why they decided to go down the, you know, the dark path, so to speak. Mm. Why didn't they continue on the path that they were on, you know, before, you know, five years ago, even? I mean, that's a great question. I think this fits in with a few things. One is that uh, China wants to be a, a good player, you know, has wanted to be a major player in the world. But um, China has has seized this all through self-interest, sees it, uh, sees it through, uh, you know, uh, securing and expanding its own its own power and protecting itself from any uh, uh, weakness. So keeping the Communist Party in power uh, is important. Keeping the Communist Party in power requires economic growth. Economic growth requires secure uh, borders and, a, a, you know, a, a a dominance over the region in order to keep the economy going, et cetera, et cetera. I think with Xi Jinping's leadership, we have seen a shift in emphasis and a shift of ambition. Prior to Xi being uh, taking over, there was a more of a tendency uh, for China to follow uh, Deng Xiaoping's old precepts of, you know, lying low and, and kind of expanding your power and expanding your influence, but not being so overt about it. But uh, under Xi Jinping, his leadership has, has played into Chinese nationalism in a very, uh, very strong way. And, and nationalism is really all the Communist Party has left in terms of, uh, of unifying the country or maintaining its own authority. So by bringing people together or, or by, you know, by promoting this idea of the China dream, you know, the, the China as a global, uh, prominent global player, it plays into nationalist sentiments and secures, uh, better secures uh, the, the party's own long-term stability and strength. 
And it uh, also was to help China's economic interests as well by extending these infrastructure projects, by making communications, et cetera, more uh, easy uh, with these regions, and by extending its, its economic uh, reach into countries in the region and other, and other places. Philip, um, recently we saw an op-ed in the Communist Party-run China Daily. It had addressed what they called a, an abuse of uh, their extradition treaty by the U.S. and Canada. And, and this is a quote from that op-ed. The decision effectively dashed hopes of an end to the incident and amending of Canada-China relations. Instead, it risks pushing Sino-Canadian relations already heavily strained because of Meng's arrest further toward a breaking point. Is this just posturing or is the relationship between China and Canada at a breaking point? And what does breaking point really mean? Well, I don't know about breaking point. I mean, the Global Times has a, a tendency to, to hyperbole uh, at, at times. But, but I think they are right in saying that this could make a relationship even worse, uh, relations worse than they, than they are now. Uh, it really depends on how China reacts to this. And it depends on whether they decide to sit this out and just wait for everything to happen and not put more pressure on us, or if they decide that they want to push the, the, the Canadian system to, into releasing Meng Wanzhou. You know, they've read the Extradition Act. They know about the various options the minister has to intervene. They continue to see this, despite our protestations about it being rule of law, a rule of law issue. They see this as political for a couple of reasons. One is because, as I said, they've read the act. They know there's a political role to play in these extraditions. And secondly, there is still uh, unwillingness or uh, lack of complete acceptance of the idea that the extradition processes or our legal processes are actually uh, independent. And so for many years with some, some extradition processes that I, I dealt with, the Chinese side would say, well, I can't believe you can't just do this. I can't believe the prime minister can't just you know, call the judge. And so I'd say, well, you know. What's wrong with your country? Yeah, you know, ministers, ministers have lost <laughs> jobs for calling judges. You know, this is the way we work. So I, I think things will certainly uh, into either stagnation or, or a darker period. And that depends on how China reacts to this Meng Wanzhou decision. The other thing that you kind of brought up at the beginning of this interview is, and I, I keep on coming back to it in my head, is the idea that COVID may have just fundamentally shifted the ground game for China and for the rest of the world, yeah. that, that China is now so vulnerable to you know anger from the rest of the Western world about how they handled the initial stages of the outbreak. They're so economically vulnerable as a result of the pandemic that they're just going to decide that this little sideshow they've got going on between Meng Wanzhou and the Michaels is no longer worth playing, essentially. And it's just not worth it to further um, infuriate another potential Western, at least quasi-ally, um, to continue this particular little little gambit that they're playing? It may be. I mean, that's, 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 that's the optimistic, that's the optimistic but, side of it. You know, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's not all you know, bright and shiny either, really. And, you know, I've been sort of been pondering this. It is possible that uh, coming out of COVID and there are China in the middle of, uh, of uh, a, a trade war with the United States that looks like it's going to continue for a while. Uh, you know, given other dynamics in the world, it doesn't have a lot of friends right now in the West. It has been, you know, doing some mass diplomacy, as they call it, you know, and it's been sending medical equipment around, partly prevent the spread of COVID, but also to, to present themselves as trying, some, someone who's trying to fix the situation. But other countries have been doing it as well. They just don't get as much press. The EU has, you know, been 
irresponsible to delivering masks all over the, the, the Europe, and it doesn't uh, get a lot of coverage. It just seems that if they were to actually, you know, uh, swallow a little bit of pride, this might be the moment to try and mend the fence with Canada, is all I'm suggesting. Yeah, although I think having bad relations with Canada isn't really, you know, it might be a little more of, of, a, of, a, of a situation, it might be a little more concerning now because I said they don't have as many friends. But, you know, having bad relations with Canada isn't really a problem for them, mm. uh, bad political relations. They know that Canadian companies will still want to sell things to them, and they're not going to cut off imports of things like pork because they desperately need pork, things like that. So, I mean, we, we had a period of relations with the Conservative government, you know, early in the Conservative government under Stephen Harper, when relations weren't were, uh, bad, not as bad as they are now, but, you know, they, they were pretty cool. And China was basically, their attitude was basically, well, we can, you know, we can sit through this for a few years and, you know, things will change and things will get better. And so we'll, uh, we don't have to have a good relationship with Canada for us to, to survive in the world. You know, I don't think there, there's any great impetus for them to, to smooth things over with us. The best we can hope for is that they don't get any worse. But the longer the Michaels are in prison and that sort of thing, I think the, the, the longer the relationship will kind of deteriorate. On that note, Philip, I want to thank you for allowing us to impose upon you. Uh, this was an absolutely fascinating chat, and uh, I think that China is going to be in the news for the foreseeable future. So I hope that you will be able to join us again sometime soon on Oppo. Be happy to. Thanks a lot. It's been fun. Thank you so much. So I, I think that we're in like one of two different scenarios. Either Canada is just going to be so irrelevant to the Chinese in the midst of a much larger global crisis that we're just going to get put on the back burner and we might be able to use that to our advantage. Or this case with Ming Wenzhou is going to become an opportunity for them to quadruple down, go harder, go stronger, just try and push everybody, every single middle power into line, right? Well, it's very, to me, it's very predictable which way they're going to go. They're going to continue on the path of escalating. I mean, we can't really hope that this all just kind of floats away because the two Michaels are in custody in China. And that's, for that to change, something very significant has to change on Canada's side. So Sandy, what you're saying is that everything's going to continue to go really well for the world. This is this is going great. This year has been amazing. Deep sigh. <laughs> Deep sigh, Deep sigh. Is, all, is all I can say. You know, one of the things that I don't really understand, because you, you see this in a lot of the editorial kind of um, approaches is, well, why doesn't Canada just stand up to China and do something about the two Michaels? And I'm, I, I, Jen, do, what? I think there's a general understanding that, like, we're a middle power here. I mean, there's things that we can potentially be doing better one of them might be, uh, you know, as, as Philip brings out, uh, working a lot harder to build better, stronger, more muscular relations with other similar powers to try and uh, to develop a, a stronger negotiating hand. That is a long term play. That's going to that's, that's what gonna Joanna take, Chu. Yeah, was that's what saying. Joanna was saying. That's what Philip. I think that's that's the only obvious way forward for us. Um, mm -hmm. So, OK, fine. Um, I think a lot of those commentators are really just more focusing on the errors of the past than they are focusing on 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 the way forward, because I just don't think there's a lot of debate about the way forward, mm -hmm. right? There's a, a, a time for reflection of how we came to some bad decisions that led us to this moment, and, and, and we did make some bad decisions. But now going forward, I, I don't even think there's even much of a debate. There's there's really one only one real obvious path to me. Mm-hmm. 
And one of the other things that I think that informs the the national perspective on this and public opinion is I think there's still a holdover from um, almost the the British Empire era where we perceive ourselves as mattering in the global calculation of really of anybody, but particularly Asia. You know, we are a minuscule country, a minuscule market. We have no real leverage. We have natural resources that can be useful to China and useful to the world economy, but literally could drop off the planet and nobody would really notice. And I don't think that when I see people chest pounding or the suggestion that we should be doing something about this, I don't think there's recognition really that we're like a little tiny island. Well, we're a G7 nation now. here. So like, I don't think that we're, insi- so we're, we're not, we're not, we're not insignificant it- economically or geopolitically. But I mean, I do think that it's interesting that you bring up the concept of the British Empire because the degree to which we used to matter, matter now, or don't matter anymore, um, you know, was traditionally hinged upon the idea that we served a role within the Commonwealth. And isn't it ironic that, you know, now that we're starting to see a disintegration um, of, of, of political norms in the United States, we're starting to see the rise of China, that whole Commonwealth idea is starting to become, I mean, not necessarily the, the British Empire part of it, but the idea of, 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 of finding nations that have uh, similar sort of political systems and similar values and finding alliances to build around those systems and those values. You know, the, the, the Commonwealth is starting to look more and more appealing as we go into whatever the next phase of our geopolitical structure going forward is. And I don't know what that's going to look like. Well, it'll... It, it... The Commonwealth itself is 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 a flawed concept. Oh, as if as as if we're working with any perfect ones. It was, <laughs> it was a time, you know. The, I mean, this whole the whole this is the whole colonial mindset, which is that we, in some ways, are a projection of royal power of some kind. Of the, the Queen Empire. is still our and, head of state. Right. <laughs> I mean, come on. Of course, we're, we're we're a projection of royal power. Have you checked out our money lately? I mean, of course we are. We we matter as much. We matter as much to that whole world. By the way, that ship has sailed, as the Brexiteers are about to discover. Everybody is still living in the past and living with this these old. Um, Constructs. Everybody, I would say everybody, everybody is looking to the past to try and rebuild the future. And we're trying to like yeah. t- take, okay, what, what might have worked from 50, 70, 150 years ago? What can we take from those previous eras? And what can we jettison to try and rebuild something that, that is functional, work, workable and better than what I, we had I, before? You, Jen, you're not going to get me to, to say that there was anything about the British Empire that it's not fundamentally and profoundly flawed. And now, as promised, it's time to open up the mailbag. Last week, we asked listeners to send in questions. Here's one we got from Brent Robinson. At Oppocast, I have a mailbag question. Are there any issues at debate in the CPC leadership race? Can you outline at least the main policy differences between McKay and O'Toole? Because I can't seem to see any real policy differentiation. Just focus and style. Well, Brent, the answer is... No. 
I kind of forgot this was happening. <laughs> Sandy? We, we would all like to forget this is happening. I mean, I think Canada has forgotten that this is happening, which is not good news for the Conservative Party of Canada. You know, I do think we really ought to do a show about the Conservative leadership situation. But I got to be honest, I'm going to have to do some catch up. So we'll get back to you, Brent. <laughs> so that's it. That if you have a question that you want us to not answer for you on the show, we'll do our best. But you can tweet us at OppoCast or send us an email at oppo at candidlandshow.com. That's it for Oppo this week. We'll be back again in two weeks. Once again, the ways to get in touch are at oppo at candidlandshow.com or on Twitter at OppoCast. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Theme music by Nathan Burley. 